0: All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Yeonmi Park. So she's a North Korean defector and also a human rights activist. She wrote a memoir back in 2015 called In Order to Live, A North Korean Girl's Journey to Freedom. And then she also has a new book out as of the recording of this. It is out now, Wild Time Remains, A North Korean Defector's Search for Freedom in America. And so a lot of you have heard her story because she's been on the Joe Rogan podcast. She's been on with Jordan Peterson. She's done some stuff with, I think, PragerU. Definitely done some stuff with Daily Wire. The thing about this interview today, and I'm just going to tell you right from the jump. We've done a lot of episodes. Again, this is episode 400 something. We've done dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews. This is the best interview that we've ever done on the show. Okay. And I know it's kind of weird because it's like, I'm the one that did it. So it's like, oh, bragging on yourself. I'm like, no, no, no. just the preparation that went into it because you know I've been basically been working on this for about two years and we finally got it done, got it recorded and just hearing her perspective. Because, and guys, I don't really want to give anything away because there's so many details in the books, her memoir, and then her latest book. And there are so many things that come out in this interview. If you've ever felt like a tough guy, you're not. If you've ever felt like you're a really resilient human being, and here I am, I'm the guy that goes around preaching the gospel of resilience, right? We don't even understand what trials really are, what, what having to be resilient, resilient and digging down deep even is. But she does. And she's somehow come out of it on the other side to be an activist and to also be an optimist. And so, I mean, in this interview, we talk about what it was like growing up in North Korea without information, without food, what it was like to literally be starving, to having to go to the field, to try and find grasshoppers to eat, to get a little bit of protein. We talk about her escaping to China and how she was sex trafficked uh, for years, her and her mother, both. She escaped to South Korea going across the Gobi Desert when it was minus 40 degrees And all she had was like a thin coat and bad shoes, making it to South Korea, making it to America, getting to America after having experienced all of that. And then she's surrounded by people that have never been hungry, never been cold. And yet they're complaining about the trauma that they experience in their lives. And then we also get into what she's doing for advocacy now. And guys, I mean, again, the entire time I'm doing the interview, I'm just like, okay, just don't mess anything up. Just set her up. But we also talk about her her Christian faith as well, because she was helped out by Christian missionaries. And there's a little bit of dissonance. With these missionaries, because these were the people that saved her from, from China and, and basically got her through Mongolia to South Korea. But they also had a deep negative impact on how she viewed God and viewed the propitiation that can be provided by the sacrifice of Jesus. Yes, all of that is involved in this interview today. And again, I just have to repeat uh, I, I've loved just about every interview that we've done. There are some that haven't turned out great, some turned out kind of dramatic, but then there's been so many that have been so impactful on you guys, and certainly on me in my personal life, nothing, as I sit here right now, having just wrapped up this interview, feels like this interview feels like. It is on a completely different level. So guys, I'm not going to keep her from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Yonmi Park, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you for having me on. I am so happy to have you on. I've actually been, uh, I feel like I've been working on this episode for a couple of years because we've been trying to get you on. I've been studying your materials and some of the things and you have a new book out. But today's interview, we're going to be looking a lot at what you did with your initial memoir, which is In Order to Live, which is just an unbelievably powerful book. But then you have a new book out that's out right now as of the, the recording of this podcast and it's Wild Time Remains. And so those are kind of be the center points of our conversation today. But I want to read a quick quote from your memoir because it kind of sets up what it was like living for you in North Korea. And so this is from your memoir in order to live. Mm -hmm. I am most grateful for two things that I was born in North Korea and that I escaped from North Korea. Both of these events shaped me and I would not trade them for an ordinary peaceful life. So let's just start casually and just go to the introduction. What was it like growing up in North Korea?
1: I mean, just one word. It's horrible. It's Mm -hmm. beyond. Anything that we can imagine, uh, I I was growing up in North Korea and I've never seen map of the world, so I had no idea there was a like countries like America, and this prosperous like free countries existed. And only thing that I knew actually about America was how horrible American uh, people were. Yeah. I didn't even think that you guys were human beings. My school teachers told me that you guys are cold-blooded reptiles. Who who eat our children, torture our children, rape our women, and we were so fortunate that we had our dear leader to defend us and keep us safe from American invasion. Hmm. So that's all I knew about the world growing up there.
0: And so, obviously, you touched on a little bit there the the brainwashing, the brainwashing uh, with kind of the understanding of the Kim family, what other people were like, you know, Americans being reptiles, just having a complete lack of information. Talk to me a little bit about the overall lack of freedom because, and we'll certainly get more into this later when we talk about when you relocated to the United States and everything from your new book, but talk about when you're growing up in North Korea, what are the things that we're used to here in America that you just have no possibility of doing if you're living there?
1: I mean, for instance, uh, even wearing a jean. In America, jeans are okay, but in North Korea, they even regulate, goes down to what you wear what you can listen to, what you can watch, what kind of haircut you can have. And there's no freedom of movement. People have no free press. So there's nothing you can do by your own free will. The regime decides what you belong to, who you're gonna marry, what job you're gonna have. It's before even your birth. So when we were born in North Korea, we had 51 different classes. And this caste system is based upon your loyalty towards the regime. So basically, like currently in America, people are being divided by skin color. Like I have a son who is half white, half Asian. I would say he's so screwed because now people say that he has an oppressor gene. He's oppressed skin color, right? Because he's white. In North Korea, exactly the same method that if my ancestors were capitalists or landlords, that means I, my blood is pain, tainted. And that's why everybody's North Korean, like depending on your class, how much you get fed is decided but based on your uh, loyalty towards the
0: regime. And and there's no movement between classes, right? Like you can't marry into a different class. Is that correct? You can't like, yeah. move from one to the other. So that's
1: how they do. They pre- try to prevent people from mixing up and moving around the classes if a lower caste, caste woman marries a higher caste man, what happens is that the entire family of the men's caste all goes down with the women's. Mm. So, I mean, like that three generation family is going to do whatever it takes to oppose their marriage. Okay, That's I'm- how they prevent the, you know, mixing it up.
0: Gotcha. And so you were talking about how the different castes that you were in, um, because most people think of caste systems as like, oh, they choose who you marry. But in North Korea, it's just completely different. But you talked about the level of food that different castes would have there in North Korea. And so you've talked about this a lot, but I, I think it's interesting to live in a country that is just, I mean, we're the fattest country on the planet. It's just embarrassing how big we are as Americans. But what you had to go through gr- growing up in North Korea as it pertained to food, we'll mm-hmm. never have to deal with here in this country. So give us a little detail on what it was like growing up in terms of food, because there's a, there's a lot that's been said about the malnutrition of North Korea, even just compared to South Korea. But yeah. I mean, for you, you actually experienced it.
1: Yeah, I think it's sometimes it really breaks my heart to see the food that we even waste in America. Mm-hmm. If we gave all that trash basically to North Korean people, nobody would have died from starvation. We are so hungry to the point some even children would like look for grains in the in animal feces. Children would eat mud, even though they know that they they're eventually gonna clog and they cannot go to bed and die from eating mud. They still eat the mud. I myself had to eat grasshoppers, dragonflies, and. Anything I could find in nature to survive in North Korea, and this is based on the regime's policy that North Korea conducted more than forty missile tests for over the last three years. One missile test is a price where he can feed the entire nation of North Korean people entire year. So if he conducted the three last missile tests, nobody had to die from starvation in North Korea. But the re- the reason why we are starving is if. If we had like full you know stomach of food in our belly, we are going to start thinking about meaning of life. We are still going thinking about freedom. so if they kept us starving like that, the only thing is going for us worrying about is finding next meal. That's why the regime uses starvation as a tool to control the population
0: so it's so interesting to hear you say that, because I remember Jordan Peterson, who uh, you've got to spend some time with, and so have I, and he wrote the foreword to your new book, which, again, we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, he talks about how starvation is basically been eradicated in the entire world, except when corruption or corrupt governments are involved. And so, again, you just explained it there. If the Kims would not do the things they want to do with the missile program, they would be able to feed the people inside their country. But talk to me a little bit more about the Kims and how they are viewed and how you are forced to view them growing up in North Korea. Because I think as Americans, we're familiar, at least tangentially with, with dictators. We're familiar with, you know, these authoritarian fascist leaders. We're familiar with, you know, Stalin and Pol Pot and Hitler and, and all these different people. But, even in the height of, of Hitler's reign in Germany, no one thought he was divine. No one yeah. thought he was sent here. So, so give us a little bit of an education as to how North Koreans are to view the Kim family.
1: So this is a very interesting point that people don't understand. Before the Korean War, before the communism came to North Korea, it was the East Jerusalem. It was the Jerusalem of Korea. The North Korean Pyongyang especially had the most vibrant missionaries. That from the West, and there are so many Christians in Pyongyang. And then Kim Il-sung's mother and uncle and his family actually were devout Christians. So Kim Il-sung left home and was like trying to fight for the independence. Later, when he was placed as a leader by Stalin, he decided to uh, get kill Christians, obviously, and mm-hmm. persecute them all. And anybody, if, even to this day, if you own a Bible, you get executed in North Korea. If you are a Christian, obviously, three generations of your family get executed in the prison camp. But uh, at the time, he realized he can be God. And so he basically copied the Bible. There's a 10 commandments the North Korean dictatorship gave to North Korean people. And uh, he said he loved us so much that he gave us his son, Kim Jong-il. And he's like, Jesus Christ, his body dies, but his spirit is with us forever. And he knows what we think. And then every Saturday, North Korean children have to go to a classroom and or their workplace. We have to find this like a red note and write down verses of a Kim Il Sung, like a Bible, you know, Bible mm-hmm. verses. Write down Kim Il Sung, like and then we say thank you to your leader. You know, even though I was not the best revolutionary for this week, for your mercy, you forgive my sin. I will become better revolutionary next time. And then at the end of this uh, this criticism session we have to pick our classmates to criticize. And that instead destroys between people. Like imagine even nine years old to go to school, entire week, you need to look for who has done something wrong because you need to find somebody to criticize every Saturday. So everybody's watching each other. So in some ways, it's the most like crazy religious culture you can imagine. And then for North Korean people, they don't even have twenty first, I mean twenty four hours electricity in the twenty first century. They don't even know the existence of the internet. They don't have passport. They have no freedom to travel. So all they know is this lie propaganda from the regime.
0: And what you're describing on me with with all the the things we've talked about so far is just it's a unique and interesting and, and just a deep level of suffering. But when you're around that much suffering, it's got to be hard to process it all. So if there's another quote I want to read from your memoir here. There were so many desperate people on the streets crying for help that you had to shut off your heart or the pain would be too much. After a while, you can't care anymore. And that is what hell is like. And Yonmi, I remember whenever I read that, because I probably I read that, that part of your memoir a couple of years ago, and that's stuck with me even to this day. Because I've talked to other people that have been in war zones or that have been in these these horrible places where children are suffering or whatever. And it's like if you feel the way you want to feel about each of those individual children or people, you'll just combust. Like you'll, you'll just explode. It's not possible for you to take it all. But take me through that because you weren't experiencing this as an adult. You were experiencing this as a child looking upon these people that are in this, just this pathetic state. And not only could you not do anything, but you couldn't even feel enough empathy to, to, to help them or to give them a kind word. I, I just can't really fathom it, to be honest. Yeah,
1: it's a, I still remember seeing this one uh, young man, or I don't know, a teenage boy or like early 20s young man. When you're so malnourished, uh, every hole in your body just opens up. And behind him, his organs were just falling out of him. And they're like flies, and there's dogs waiting for him to die off. And while his organs all came out of him, he was begging for food. And I was looking down at him, I was you just, you're numb at that mm-hmm. point, you know? And I think, in some sense, that's how our brain protects us to help us to survive the situation. And in North Korea, it's a compassion is not a word that people use, there's no word for love. North Korean people die without ever someone said, say to them that somebody loves them. Like when I was North Korea, my father never told him he loved me. He passed away. So even very basic thing that is compassion, love is being denied because Kim Jong-un is, was afraid that if people, like he banned Mother's Day a few years ago. And the thought was if we love our mothers, we are not going to love them as much. He even banned the love between mother and, and, and the child. So in North Korea, it's a different planet. Like even that very basic thing that as a human you can do, empathy, that is now love.
0: And you talk about the brainwashing and the control of thoughts, but now you're also talking about the control of language Mm -hmm. in that, you know, I was shocked to read that there is no word for love or empathy or compassion or or something in the North Korean vernacular. And so uh, the, what this all kind of led to, and again, we're skipping over a lot. So I think it's well worth everybody's time to buy your new book, while time remains, and also your memoir, because you get into a lot of detail where we're just skimming the surface. But when you were 13, you and your family decided that you would try to escape North, North Korea and go to China. And so human traffickers actually tricked you and your mother to follow them to China. And in your memoir, you describe finding out that your mother was actually raped by one of the traffickers. And you found out that your mom had actually done this to protect you because it was actually you that the trafficker wanted to rape. And then a little later, you actually describe seeing your mother raped by one of the traffickers and how that was, in the most macabre way, that was actually your introduction to the act of sex. And I've heard you tell this story many times, and it's not lost on me, that this mm-hmm. is a terrible thing to talk about. But can you describe the decision-making process to try and escape North Korea and then also the subsequent issues that you ran into once you got into China?
1: Yeah, so as you said, you know, North Koreans, we don't even know there's much else that would exist. Luckily, I was living on the border town of North Korea. So I was able to see these lights at night coming from Chinese side. Mm. And that's when we thought, like, if we go where the lights were, we could find find something to eat. And my sister escaped first when she was 16 years old. And then uh, one week later, my mother and I followed her. We uh, found a lady who wanted to help us to cross the river into China. And when you are so desperate, you don't even question if I didn't cross that night, I would died from starvation long ago. Right. So we did follow her, and, and then she matches with the broker. And like what you said, the first thing I was seeing in China was my mother being raped. And then they were selling us as sex slaves. So there, are, there was a one child policy in China that recently got ended. Due to that policy, a lot of people were aborting girls and kept the boys. So now there are more than 33 million men cannot find wives in China. So they buy North Korean girls as their sex toys. And also for organ harvesting, they need to buy these girls and men and take their organs out and just discard their body because we, we are not protected by any law, right? Even right. killing us like a killing of mice, you know, not even like less valuable than dog and pig, nobody going to hold them accountable. And that was my fate when I got to China. It was, in some sense, worse than what North Korea was.
0: And so you mentioned how how you and your mother were sold, and you were actually sold separately as part of these human trafficking transactions. But one thing I felt that was interesting as you described the story on me is that you described what it was like hearing men barter and negotiate for you and your mother As if you were an animal of some kind. Take us through that, because as a young lady, as as a thirteen year old, you're hearing these men compare you and your mother, and almost pit you against one another. And where can they place you? Take us through that.
1: Yeah, I think I remember they would like make me stand up and like make me turn around and check my teeth and check our like bones and everything and see if we have any defects, right? If we are like disabled or not. And then they started negotiating and my mom was just uh, in her 40s, just turned 40 or something. So they were like, is she able to reproduce or not? Because they, if the women can reproduce, then they will sell the babies mm. as like porn like industry, as a as sex slave. So a lot of North Korean women are also being bought and they buy them and then get impregnate them. And then they keep making them to get pregnant and sell those child. And th- these are the, more than a million of these children in China right now, uh, who were born by North Korean women. So they were negotiating that I was 13 years old and I was a virgin. And this perverted man, they love child virginity. So they were, you know, ranking my price over 20 dollars and they were making my mother were sold for $65.
0: And again, it's just astonishing to hear that in this country where, you know, in this country, we have people that wait to, to have their families and then maybe they struggle to get pregnant and then they have to go through all these different processes to get pregnant. And it's it's usually a joyous thing. And then then over there, it's like, again, you're just a commodity, just like, you know, an animal giving birth to another animal that you can sell. And so, uh, again, it just kind of gives you an idea of the level of depravity that you were dealing with in that area. And Yunmi, things got so bad for you and your mother in China that you decided that you were going to try to escape to Mongolia, Mm -hmm. but not to relocate and stay in Mongolia, but with the eventual goal of making it to South Korea. Mm -hmm. And so you you were helped along in this goal uh, of escaping by a group of Christian missionaries. And we'll talk more about the Christian missionaries here in a second. But take us through that process of getting from China to Mongolia to South Korea. Why did that have to be the way you had to go?
1: So in in China, uh, we don't have any paid passport or ID or any documents. And if we get caught by Chinese police, they would catch us and send us back to North Korea to get killed and tortured or sent to prison camps. So we are extremely vulnerable. The only way for us to escape from China was actually walking across the frozen Gobi Desert into Mongolia. And somehow, if we didn't die in the desert and made it to Mongolia, then Mongolia might help us to go to South Korea as refugees.
0: So, Yonmi, so you mentioned going across the Gobi Desert. When most of us hear desert, we think Mm -hmm. 100 degrees, sand everywhere. But talk about crossing the Gobi Desert at the time that you were crossing it. Because my understanding is the time of year that you were crossing the Gobi Desert Temperatures would get to minus 30, minus 40, and it, it wasn't like you were in the world's best gear to make that, that trip. So, so let's talk a little bit more about what it was like actually crossing the desert.
1: Yeah, so this was almost end of February 2009 when I was 15 years old. Uh, we had a, one, one toddler in our group, and we had a total of eight people, including that child. And then uh, they would they told us, gave us one compass, and then told us to, why don't you go far the north and west direction and cross the eight wire fences, and that might be Mongolia. And if you get caught by the Mongolian soldiers, tell them that we are refugee. But to going through these uh, wire fences and desert is like there are border guards with machine guns. If they see anybody cross, they're gonna. Sh- it's not like an American border; you can just walk in. <laughs> they literally just shoot you. It's a kill, uh, shoot to kill order. Like they just yeah. shoot you and you die, and no, you just cross the border illegally, and that's nobody can question their authority to do that. And this, uh, the wire fences are electrified, so if you touch it, you can just electrify and die. Uh, in this, so that's why we needed a miracle, and it was we chose a coldest month, and so the guards would think like nobody's crazy enough to go through this desert right now because minus forty degrees you breathe it becomes all icicle like it's Mm. if you don't move for five seconds you literally you can die from freezing to death and we don't have gears like gloves or hat or scarf we're just wearing thin jacket no gloves not no boots started walking from gobi desert and somehow against all odds i survived
0: so, me, I just recently read a book about a World War II pilot that you know was shot down over Germany, and then he was in a German POW camp. Uh, his name is Frank Murphy, and there was a death march that they were on, and I remember hearing these stories about these other soldiers that on this march in the snow, very, very mm-hmm. cold, similar situation, that these men would just walk out of line and walk into the snow and they would just sit down, and it's just like, look, I, I can't like I can't go anymore. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to die. Yeah. And these are strong, you know, young military aged men, but they got to a point where they broke mentally. Yeah. I want you to talk a little bit more because again, guys, we need to set the scene. She was not in snow boots. <sighs> Yomi was not was not wearing a parka that you could, you know, wear and, you know, go up and climb a mountain during the winter time. Thin jacket, thin clothes, not the world's best shoes. You know, again, minus 40 degree temperatures. Was there a time during that, Yeonmi, where you're like, okay, this, this is terrible. Like, I'd rather be back in North Korea. Or was it like, look, I'm either going to make it or I'm going to die trying. Just take me through that mindset because, to be, to be honest, I, I don't have anything that even comes close to that in my life. And I'm assuming most of the guys listening to this don't either.
1: Yeah, it's like a, what shocked me standing on that Gobi Desert was it's like standing in front of the middle of the ocean there is nothing indicates you that you're going forward or going circle or backwards. There's not, it's just pure sand and flat. So I was thinking like, are we going back or are we going forward? Are we going sideways? And then it was pitch dark. Eventually we got to see some stars, but there's times, you know, throughout the night based on the cloud, everything, you see some stars and it become pitch dark. And another danger that I, we had to avoid in the desert was not the soldiers, of course, but then the animals. There are very wild animals and snakes that come and eat people because they are very hungry too. And then, we, and then the, I remember the missionaries were told, told us that if you cross eight wire fences, it's going to become Mongolia. So we we'll keep looking for wire fences. But then you hallucinate you know, because you want it so much you feel like there is a wire fence and you run and run and go, it's not there. And you, and it literally, you might just lose your mind at that point. And I think that's when we, you don't even have strength to pray. All we said it was, uh, Jesus' blood is my blood. Jesus' blood is my blood. And I think that's the only thing we said. And just keep thinking that line, what that means. And, just keep going and, and somehow a miracle you know, saved
0: us. And, and you made it to Mongolia and we'll, we'll get more into the rest of your trip here in a second. But I want to go back to something that you said earlier because mm-hmm. the Christian missionaries that helped you told you and your mother to prepare for the very real possibility that you would be captured mm-hmm. and sent back to North Korea. So I want to actually read a quote from your new book that's out now, While Time Remains. I remember preparing myself for suicide. My mother and I had a plan for if we were caught. She had hidden dozens of razor blades in my jacket and a plastic bag full of sleeping pills in her bra. We cried as we rehearsed the steps. If we got caught by the authorities, we tried to lighten the emotional burden by reassuring each other that we were lucky to be in such a position at all to finally escape to freedom or else to finally be released from hell. Our journey to the other side, wherever that may be, would be together. We would be together. It would be to freedom. And again, excuse me. Just to even put yourself in that position to where you're like, okay, I'm almost going on a suicide mission, walking across the Gobi Desert, but that's not nearly as scary as, uh, the cold's not nearly as scary as the animals, which isn't nearly as scary as the soldiers that are going to take us and send us back where you would be executed immediately. But it was almost like you and your mother, you took, cause you, you hadn't been in control of your lives for your entire lives, but you were going to control your last moments on this earth, if that were to happen mm-hmm. again, I, I feel almost shameful even keeping to bring it up, but none of us in the audience, you me have ever gone through something like that, or even thought through that, but take me through those moments where you and your mother were rehearsing your suicides just in case you were captured.
1: I think that's the thing. Uh, when I was living through North Korea and China, actually dying was the easiest thing that I could do. I mean, dying takes a maximum five minutes. Living takes forever. So I think when we were preparing it, it wasn't like any sadness or anything. We were just, like, we were just numb. <laughs> yeah. We were just trying to survive. And if we don't make it, and there was nothing made me even resentful at that point. You know, all I knew, all I knew about the world was just darkness and suffering. And like, we never learned how to complain even either. That was not a thing for us. Or like complain how unfair it is that we are born in North Korea. I think all we just were thinking is if we get caught, if we get caught, it's not they're going to actually execute immediately. They're going to send us back to North Korea. And the first thing they're going to do is raping us, taking our nails away. They're going to torture us. And they're going to let us die in the most horrible way that you can imagine. So actually killing ourselves just immediately was the biggest blessing that we could ask for from God. And I think that's what we were hoping. If we get caught, please let us kill ourselves, and we don't have to go that far.
0: So, Yonmi, when, when you were working with the Christian missionaries, um, you describe a moment, because everything that you've described, uh, as I read in your book or as I've heard you speak, all that is, is awful, uh, in a physical way, in an emotional way. But then there was also some spiritual things that were going on in this moment that I just just absolutely took my breath away. But when you're working with the Christian missionaries, you describe a time when the pastor called a prayer meeting yeah. where you all would confess sins and ask for forgiveness. Now, this is different than what you experience in the classrooms in North Korea, where you're you know trying to point out the sins of somebody else. This is a moment where you're basically confessing sins and asking for forgiveness. And after you and your mother did this, that pastor pressed you to continue. He he wanted you to keep going, and he wanted you to basically say your sins to the entire group and ask for forgiveness. And you and your mother at that moment actually confessed to working in sex chat rooms in Xinjiang, China, uh, while you were you know, basically just trying to survive. Can you actually take us through that situation? Because the pastor responded to you in a way that just absolutely made me sick to my stomach. Can you take us through that?
1: So um, after we were bought, I was bought by this human trafficker, and then I made a, I was going to kill myself. I couldn't take that shame at 13, and then he said, if you become my mistress, I'm going to help you to bring your family. So I sacrificed myself to bring my, save my family. I became his mistress, and he brought my mom back from the farmer, at, and then brought my sick father from North Korea, but he passed away eventually. So after two years uh, of slavery, roughly, he would let me go for some reason. But even if he lets me go, as a North Korean defector, we couldn't even get a job to wash dishes. Like, mm. we were begging, can can we just at least wash some dishes and sleep in the corner of the kitchen? You know, people would not let us to do that. So the only place we could end up going was uh actually brothels, where we would be in a room, and there's like... 50 times of rape every day, and the price for us was getting fed and staying hiding in a room. And then our friend Korean Defector told us there's a way we can be safe was actually join this chat room where no man physically touches us, but we need to show our bodies through the webcam. If we do that, they're going to give us the apartment to stay and it would give us food to eat. And that was the only way we could survive in China. So now we meet this missionary in the prayer meeting. He asks us to confess, confess everything that we did. And of course, we confessed all this. And then he said, um, I think we are too, too dirty. I think we are too guilty to be, I think, <laughs> redeemed or forgiven by God. And I think that's, I think trauma left me pretty, pretty bad. That's when I think for the first time I realized even though it wasn't my fault going through all of this, but the world is not never going to forgive me what I, I did to
0: survive. So again, like I said, you me, whenever I read that I was, I was sick to my stomach. I was angry for you. Um, and to a degree, it's like, I almost want to apologize, even though like it, I wasn't the one that did that. But I feel like what the pastor should have done at that moment, there's a couple of scriptures that came to mind. But in 1 John 1, 9, it's, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so also in Hebrews 10, 10, mm-hmm. and by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So... I guess I just want to tell you that the way that he acted in that moment, Yon-Mi, was completely inappropriate and also not in accordance with what we learn from the New Testament scriptures of the Bible. There is not a single person that cannot accept the righteousness that Jesus gives us from his sacrifice. I just... I guess how has that affected how you've thought about Christianity moving forward? Because even in your new book, you you kind of mention spirituality, you you mention God, but you also mention some confusion there. But I can imagine that being a starting point of some real confusion if you have this supposed pastor telling you, "Oh, well, you're so bad you can't be forgiven. It's just not right. It's just mm-hmm. not biblical." How has that kind of framed the way that you've operated?
1: I think, of course, it made me to think of Christianity to begin that way, right? To hearing about God and Jesus Christ for the first time through that context made me feel like they were very judgmental. And it's in some sense, very mean, you know, it's like I was still a 15 years old child and he was saying, I'm so dirty. Like, I was like, what can I do? I, there's nothing I could have done for my past. It was not my choice. And then I think it took a while. I became atheist. I mean, believe it or not, after I go to Oscar, even though we promised to these Christians that I'm going to become a Christian afterwards, yeah. I lied. I mean, I, I couldn't follow that religion. I was like so sick. And I just thought, I felt like it was like almost the same method, methodology the Norse religion was doing to us, that we are somehow, nobody, there's no mercy, right? Nobody mm-hmm. can be forgiven. And then it took a while for me to think, rethink about it. And he's like thinking, people are not perfect. Even though that's what at the moment he said, if you look at his actions, he was the only man who risked his life to come to China to rescue us. Hmm. There's so many people say virtuous things sitting at home in the comfort of sofa and AC and nice like refrigerator. They talk about all the great things about how to make the world a better place. They don't do anything when it comes to actions. They don't take any risk. And then I think that's when I realized she was actually the greatest hero I've ever met in my life when it comes to action. And I think that's very important for us to realize the action and also accept that not everybody's perfect. And then when I had my own son five years ago, that's I, I, I think I met God. I was, for the first time, seeing the miracle. I was holding my son in my arms, like, this is not what I did. This is God's job. Like, God created this human being and to for me to take care of him, right? And then, since that point, I think, somehow, I started having a relationship with God, and now I'm fully Christian.
0: It's such an incredible story again and we'll get more just into your mindset because again i'm a very pessimistic guy (laughs) and i haven't had a rough life and somehow i'm still pessimistic and i still get frustrated when the wi-fi doesn't work properly or or whatever that type of thing but there are a lot of people young me here in this country and i'm sure you've experienced this since you've lived here that they will have one bad experience with a church person Mm. right maybe it's a pastor or a priest and and Sometimes they they call it church hurt. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, church hurt, like the church hurt them in some way. And I'm not talking about the people that have been sexually taken advantage of. That's a whole different category, people that have been taken advantage of financially. I'm talking about people that there was a mean pastor or there was a judgmental pastor. And from that point forward, they shut off that entire part of their life. They they don't believe in God anymore. They certainly don't believe in the sacrifice of Jesus to, you know, provide propitiation for us to be able to be before the father. But for you, you didn't shut it off. You shut it off initially, mm-hmm. but you didn't shut it off entirely. Mm-hmm. So take me through that a little more because again, in America, it's so convenient for people, especially when you can have all your needs met so easily to be like, ah, God, Jesus, I don't really care. Right. I
1: think it was uh same thing. Actually. I just, I was in New York City, and so many of my girlfriends hate men. They think that men are horrible, and we have all these problems in the world because of white men, and because they're in power, there's so much violence. And like you said, Ria, there is a rapist that that are men. Mm -hmm. And I really like the any guy that I met in China, they were all my rapists. They were all trying to rape me. But then remember that my father was a man who was the most amazing man. He gave everything he had to protect his own family and providing for his family. Without him, I would not be here. And any woman currently alive, they would not be here without their father, right? So I think understanding life not as black and white and under, not generalizing it because there's some, one pastor was a was not the perfect person. Now I'm going to think everything is that way. It's, in a way, it's very uneducated, very shallow way of understanding words. And people still are asking me, like, how do you not hate men? Like, how do you date men? As if I need to become a lesbian, you know? And, like, I love men. And I have a son who is a man. And I became very men's advocate. And people get so baffled. Like, somehow, I defend men in my life right now.
0: Well, Yeonmi, you brought up your father. So I want to get into here in a second. I want to get into going to South Korea and basically that kind of being the start of your new life. But your father features very prominently in both of your books, very unique man. And obviously you need to go get the books to to kind of dig in there. But it's almost like understanding the type of man that your father was, a virtuous man like your father was, Mm -hmm. almost gave you a pathway to your heavenly father. Because I know Mm -hmm. men that have bad fathers on on this planet and then they're like well why would i want a heavenly father my my father's so bad or he's absent or he beat me or he any of those types of things but if you were to almost summarize some of the things that helped you get through this outside of god it was it was your dad your dad gave you some very special things that that are there inside of you young me and mm-hmm. like even though he's not here anymore it's like his spirit lives on through you. And I don't mean that in kind of a new age way. I just mean like the spirit with which he lived with his perspective, his ability to be thankful, even in the face of horrible, uh, depravity. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about your father. Again, I know it's like we have short shrift cause cause we have to move on in this podcast, but again, it seems like he still has such a big impact on you.
1: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, he's, he's, his spirit in me, I think. It's, uh, he is with me. Uh, I think I never questioned that. I think in even my second book, I opened it as what he told me that uh, tigers, when they die, they leave their skin. And when humans die, we leave our names. So make, make your name long and lasting. And that really stuck with me how he was, even in that vicious communist dictatorship living through, he still tried to make life meaningful like virtues, you know, that was helping other people. That was not just about himself, but always serving other people. He sacrificed everything for his family to protect us and provide for us. And he literally, providing for us, means he was risking his life. He was, And then that's how he was sent to prison camp and get tortured and sentenced more than 10 years. And he died at the age of 45, not knowing what freedom was. Not knowing a life can be discomfortable, comfortable this, this prosperous? So in some sense, like this man, all he knew was darkness and suffering. But somehow, he was always able to see the light, and he was so resilient. He told me, no matter hard how hard life punch you and push you down, you always get back up, like a roly poly doll. That's what he told me as a young girl. I was like. Do you see that little doll? No matter what I do, she's going come back up. That's what you need to do. So that's how I understood life. And he said, no matter what, life is a gift. You need to fight for life. No matter what, this is life is the most precious thing. And now I come to America, people are living in this comfort. They, of course, they say like babies in mothers' tummies are not babies. And that there's no appreciation for life. There's never been a time this easy to fight for life. And somehow my father had that appreciation for life that I don't know where it came from, but he had that. And I think to this day that he inspires me.
0: What inspires me too, Yonmi, to because again, everyone here in America for the most part can look at their lives. And or it was the Warren Buffett quote uh, that you -hmm. put in your book to where it's just like, okay, there's 8 billion people on the planet. Mm -hmm. If you had a big jar and everybody's life were a marble Mm -hmm. and you put all the marbles in the jar, would you take the chance of reaching into that jar and switching your life for somebody else's? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, that means you have a blessed life because there are a lot of people in this world, guys, a lot of people, billions of Mm -hmm. them that would throw their hand in the jar hoping to God they would end up in this country or in a country similar to it. And so for you, Yonmi, you go through what you go through in North Korea and then into China and the Gobi Desert and Mongolia, but then you eventually do make it to south korea and you're trying to put your life together and get established in south korea and you're trying to assimilate to you know a quote-unquote normal life whatever that looks like in a new country that is part of the same land mass as your old country right mm-hmm. but take us through that process of being a korean but being north korean speaking a little differently looking a little different obviously being smaller than your south korean yeah. counterparts because of malnutrition there's a lot there go ahead
1: yeah, I think uh, of course I got to South Korea. First thing they do is taking me to a hospital. That we've never been to a health checkup as North Koreans, and we've been in China exposed to everything. They make sure that we are not bringing new diseases to the South Korean population. After that was cleared, they would put us in a two-month of isolation and interrogation, make sure that we are North Koreans, and make sure that we are not spies. Right. Once that thing is clear, they put us into this three-month period of education where first thing is that they, Americans are not bastards, they are not reptiles, they are human beings, they are like living under democracy, and they, told, they chose what bank is, how to take a subway. And then for the first time, I learned that Kims were dictators. They told me, everything that you were taught and to believe was a lie. But the biggest challenge for me was, so everything that I was reading before was a lie. How do I know that what you're telling me is not a lie? You know, I I just could not trust again. And then for the first time, I had to think for myself. And that was so hard. Like being free was so, so hard. Like for the first time, I had to think like what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to study. You know, what kind of life I'm going to live. And thinking about the responsibility that comes from being free, that overwhelmed me. And at some point I was thinking, if I go back to North Korea and the regime would not execute me and giving me some enough frozen potatoes, I would want to go back to North Korea to be a slave again and just be taken care of by this regime.
0: That's so interesting. You saw. You talk about kind of the how freedom is so hard. And, again, this all kind of goes to what happens whenever you get to America, but uh, we'll get there eventually. But one thing that's very interesting about your time in South Korea, Yonmi, is that you gained a tremendous hunger for education because you weren't being educated in North Korea. You were being brainwashed, Mm -hmm. right? You were given propaganda. You weren't given, you know, the basics of anything. But because of the state of North Korea, you were way behind Uh, your age group educationally in South Korea. So take us through the process of, I guess, getting caught up and actually making your way to a university in South Korea because from where you started to where you ended up just even in South Korea, it was a tremendous accomplishment for you.
1: Yeah, I remember I got to South Korea and Korean age, I was 17 years old, which means high school age. And my actual academic level was like less than like elementary school students level. Like I didn't know, of course, the alphabet, I did not know map of the world. I did not know anything about science, biology, physics, like math, none of it. So I had to take the GED to catch up. So I remember I was like reading 100 books each year and studying this subject. I was eventually landing in the ER from my because yeah. I didn't have time to eat in South Korea. I was, uh, I don't know, I slept two hours a day, three hours a day maximum. Just studying and studying and in the library, catching up what I missed to learn. And after a year and a half, miraculously, I was able to go to university.
0: And so you get to university, you obviously do well there, but then at some point, I know we're skipping around Mm -hmm. again, guys, all the details are in the books, they're in the show notes, you can pick them up for yourself, but you actually found your way on a trip to America. Yeah. And so again, this place where, as a child, you were convinced there were a bunch of raping reptiles—that <laughs> you know these horrible people with tails and scales—you get to America. What was it like when you saw America for the first time?
1: I remember uh, I was going to Tyler, Texas, to something called Youth with a Mission (YM), the mm-hmm. DTS group, and in Tyler, like, there's transitory flight that I take from Houston. At the when I got to Houston. I was very, very afraid. Like, what is gonna monsters gonna do to me? Right? I'm like landing to my enemy's territory, and then this is a guy in their hoodies, eating their chips, and this gigantic smile on their face, and saying hello, how are you, man? And like these people were just so, so happy and so friendly, and I think that's when I realized lies do not have power. When there's truth. We do not need to be afraid from these lies. They cannot hold it. They, they just don't have power. And all that fear and brainwashing just went away that second, just looking at this man's smile. It's like, yep, this is, a, this is a different country. This is not what the North Korean regime told me about.
0: And so you get to spend this time in America. And of course, you got a, a nice little sense of Southern hospitality, which is great. Uh, you spent some time in New York City. And then again, you know, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff here. You go through a visa process and you end up becoming a resident of New York City. And then eventually you you became a citizen of the United States. I believe that just happened last yeah. year. So congratulations on that. I literally wrote in the margin like, yeah, great <laughs> job. And I like highlighted. I was like, you're finally you're finally here. You're one of us uh, for real, officially. But You settle in New York City. I used to live in New York City. I hated living there. It was, uh, I just, it had nothing to do with the speed. It had everything to do with the people. The people didn't have time to stop and care about you and to care about what you were doing. And you understood that there were some immediate differences that you had to get used to not just from what you were growing up like in north korea or even from south korea or even from texas but it's just this different style of how certain people talk in certain places And so there's actually a quote i want to read from wild time remains here it was strange to notice that my new friends and colleagues living in conditions of overabundance also seemed to have their own versions of trauma for which many of them were receiving help from a doctor licensed in therapy so you're talking to these New Yorkers that have grown up, never been hungry, never been cold, or any of these types of things. And they're experiencing trauma on a daily basis. And here you are, a North Korean defector, and you're just like, hey, where's the nearest steak restaurant? Because I need some more of this steak. Take me through that because it's it's funny, but it's also just maddening at the same time.
1: Yeah, I think when I came to America, like my friends would do like go look up restaurants on Yelp and then looking at the reviews. And then, like they would go to this most hip restaurant and be in the line for a, for a while to eat, and until that point, for me, the food was all about quantity, never about quality. I couldn't understand why you need to be in the line to eat some food. And then, like of course, these people are so prosperous; they would they would pay money to go to gym to burn calories. In North Korea, we had to conserve our energy to survive. We couldn't spare any calorie, and these people's problem was having too much food. And then in this abundance, and like you said, safety, of course, it's so safe here. They were like 80% of the minimum were going to see their therapist. And they were telling me how finding a therapist is, is harder than finding a right husband for them. <laughs> because finding the right therapist yeah. is so hard. And then they were like, keep asking me, why don't you go see a therapist? And I was like, what is therapy? It's like, oh, because you have a trauma, you're going to go unpack your like trauma and talk about where it's coming from. And I just, of course, it co- costs a lot of money. And I, for me, it was like, what is the point of me surviving all of that now because I'm going to just talk about that for the rest of my life, how hard it was to survive it. But I think these people, for them, was like, I think their threshold to take any difficulty in life is so low that they cannot function without complaining to somebody once a week. And, but I think I'm, I'm supportive of that because I mean, if that's the way you feel comforted, that's fine. But it's pretty funny that, you know. <laughs>
0: No, it's not fine. That's where I'm going to interrupt yeah. you. Like, no, it is. It is super duper not fine that we get to this point. It's fragility, right? It's just this overwhelmed sense of fragility that words can hurt mm-hmm. us. If people ask you a question like, "Hey, where are you from?" that that's a microaggression that they're othering you, and it's just it's just silly nonsense. But I think we can all kind of get an idea of where these ideas come from because here you are you're way behind educationally you almost kill yourself trying to just get caught up right you know whenever you're going to school in South Korea you go to university in South Korea but then you apply to go to one of the most famous Ivy League schools in the world Columbia University there in New York City you were accepted and then, you you know, you became a student. So here you are. You're excited. Mm-hmm. You're you're just you're super excited before your classes start. Just before we get into your freshman orientation, because I have some questions there, just take me through the excitement of thinking to yourself, man, I've made it. I, I got caught up and here I am going to an American Ivy League school. I think like what uh,
1: Dr. Peterson wrote for the foreword in my new book, he says, you know, the things that I was able to achieve and going to Columbia was not in... It was beyond dream. It was not something I could imagine. Of course, growing up in North I had no idea what Ivy League schools were. I did not even know what university was. So going to Colombia was not even the feeling of achieving your dream. It was like beyond that. There's no word to describe that feeling of doing something that's so amazing that I couldn't even express that to that. So. You know, I couldn't sleep, literally. I couldn't sleep. I was up all night. I was just so excited. I didn't even need sleep because I was really excited and full joy. And for me at the time, freedom meant learning. You know, I was always intellectually curious. So I'm going to go to a place with the greatest mind, greatest place where I'm going to openly debate, openly learn ideas and find the truth and really learn how to think. The liberal arts education, that what they're promising to do and That's what I was expecting
0: when I was going to the campus that morning. So you're excited, you're optimistic, and everything seems like it's trending in the right direction because you're ready. You're prepared to do this. But all that seemed to disappear immediately during your freshman orientation. And it seemed like it disappeared immediately whenever somebody brought up Jane Austen. And so take us through the Jane Austen story. So in
1: this a uh, freshman orientation that we are all obligated to go, it's so we have to attend this orientation before we start actual classes. One of the instructors was t- telling us the importance of staying woke, and it was really the for the first time I heard the word woke. You know, I was like, I'm awake. Like, how am I not yeah. woke, right? Yeah. I was just so confused. Like, yeah, I'm awake. That's why I'm here. But then she was like, no, 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 giving us example of being woke. So she was like, okay, I'm going to give you guys an example. Who likes to read Jane Austen? And I, I raised my hand because I love reading. Mm. And in North Korea, it's like we don't have love. And there's a lady in the 18th century like talking about human emotions, the complexity of being a human. I was like so touched. And then she was saying, you know, by reading Jane Austen, you make to believe that somehow only white men are capable of logical thinking. And because she was living in the era of white colonialism, her writings perpetuating that white supremacy and systemic racism. And that's how I am taking a part in this horrible, horrible, you know, oppression. That's the example of staying being woke, to understand where all this this oppression is hiding, you know, beneath all of these things that we are seeing. And I think I was like, I thought she was joking literally initially. I was like, this got to be a joke by right? reading one of the classical work of our achievement as a civilization. Yeah. This is a sign of oppression. I mean, you got to be a job, And then it just continues from there. They were making us to go to this a consent orientation where we all had to go. And I initially, I was appreciated. Like, I was after a rape victim and teaching everybody to understand the consent between people before they have sex is important. They were like showing us like cartoons and videos and talk speech. And then eventually what stuck me was like, okay, there's examples, right? Two students, like men and female and male go out in a bar and drink. At the end of the night, both of them get drunk and then decide to have sex. The next morning, women mix up and she says, I gave her consent under influence. I regret the sex. That means that's a rape. Even though men and women equally drank, drank that night, but if the woman changed her mind the next morning, it's a it's a rape. So that's what I'm saying. This is an insult to real actual rape victims. This is not a rape. This is not how rape happens in real life, right? They are bending the truth. This is not what actual rape means. And then the the professors would write to emails to us. Today's writings and readings are going to cover these this topics if it triggers you in any way. Don't do the readings and don't even come to class. And don't even need to tell me what triggers you. So I was like, then why are you here? If you can't handle reading some books, you should right. not be in the university. And then professor said, if it's too much to handle, this, like, this oppression is too much for them, right? then you need to bring your uh, comfort to animals. And at the time, I was actually a new mom. I had a child. I was nursing. I had a pump every two to three hours. So I was asking my professor, can I bring my child? And my nanny can be outside. And if he snaps, can he stay next to me? She's like, no, babies are not allowed in the classroom. Even the just sleeping infant baby was like nursing by mother. And then they was letting these puppies to come licking around us. Because they are comfort animals. And I think that's when I realized this country is getting destroyed. Like this is a I'm witnessing the fall of civilization.
0: Well, and these are supposed to be the, the betters, right? These are the people that are in the Ivy leagues. These are the smartest people that we have to give in our country. And I thought it was very appropriate at the, well, not appropriate at all, but appropriate to this person. But at the end of that freshman orientation, that whole Jane mm-hmm. Austen thing, the person ended her talk with, this is how we look for hidden systemic racism and oppression.
1: Yeah. And so
0: here you are telling an 18, 19 year old incoming freshman to a college that no matter what we study, whether it's chemistry or biology or, you know, some, some social history or uh, mathematics, no matter what you're studying, there's something hidden. And yeah. it kind of reminded me of your classrooms in North Korea growing up mm-hmm. where there's always this hidden thing behind, you know. And this may be someone that, you know, said something not so nice about the Kims. And now it's like, well, there's got to be racism or oppression that's like holding people back. But there was also this constant fear that all of you were living in a being branded as six herb. So that is, so six herb stands for sexist, intolerant, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, racist, bigot. And now a guy like me, you could call me all those things. I will giggle and continue on with my life. I really don't care if you say those things about me because I know who I am. God knows who I am. You have no idea, but you are in constant fear of being labeled one of those things. And so it, it was almost like this freedom that you were supposed to be feeling in America. You couldn't feel it in an American classroom because what if you expressed the wrong opinion? What if you express an opinion that went kind of outside of the normal parameters of these people? So talk to me a little bit about that because that just had to be crazy for someone like you to feel like you're free and then all of a sudden you, you feel like you're being gagged in your own, your own classrooms. Yeah, I think this paranoia
1: that in North Korea, first thing my mother told me was, don't even whisper because the birds and mice could hear me. Mm. She said, the most dangerous thing I had in my body was my tongue. If I said the one wrong thing, that was going to kill me and along with three generations of my family. And now at Columbia class, obviously, you don't get executed. But the consequences is real. If you made look or gesture or word, anything that you made somebody unsafe, not physically punching them, mm. but emotionally unsafe, like because we need to have a safe space at Columbia, then you can actually get kicked out of the university. But not only that, because like you said, at Columbia, everybody's going to investment banking, the big tech, governments, and going to the big you know business consulting companies. Not that many things they can pay your tuition back after graduating. And a lot of them go to the UN as well. And then you are going to work with your colleagues eventually. And they are like alumni in the company. So you cannot be marked as this one of six hers, right? If you do that, that is like almost being marked as a racist and that your livelihood is going away. Your dignity just goes away. Your reputation gets destroyed. So everybody has to watch out. You know, it's like North Korea. If you see something, say something. That's what American classroom says. If you see something, say something. It's like my teachers at North Korea mandating us to, you know, Report our classmates, criticize them openly mm. in what they do. And this like sitting the distrust I mean, between students. That's why in North Korea, we don't have friends. We only have comrades. That's a very different thing being comrades and friends. And in America, now they say, keep asking us if you see something, say something. And, and that paranoia just comes back.
0: So it's the paranoia, but it's also that brainwashing that you were talking about to where it's like, if you don't just parrot these things and say them the exact way and the exact cadence that we want, you're going to be branded as one of these things. And that was one of the most telling things and most heartbreaking things in your interview that you did with Jordan Peterson. It actually brought him to tears when you said you felt like your time at Columbia, not your time at, you know, butthole state, you know, community college, but like Columbia was a waste of your time and he was just appalled because this is a this is an academic this is an academician this is a guy that has dedicated his life to education and to a college university campus and he's just so appalled at where it is now but the thing about what what you did is you took your education and then you almost accidentally moved into advocacy but not like what some of your classmates were doing but it was almost like you were forced into this, young me, because you were invited to give a speech in Ireland, yeah. and this speech went viral, and it kind of sent your life on a different path that than maybe what you were expecting. So take us through that that event and this speech, and, and why you think it had such an impact.
1: So I was invited to speak at this One Young World Conference in Ireland, Dublin, and I was for the first time in the big stage. I shared my story and what was happening to North Korean people, and the North Korean modern day slaves in China. And I think that day were just, there's more than 2,000 people from all around the world were standing there and crying with me. And I think that day was for the first time my faith in humanity got restored. Mm-hmm. I lost my faith in humanity when I was in China. Humans were the worst things I've ever seen in my life. And then I was realizing if I let the world know what's happening, I might be able to stop this modern day Holocaust. You know, it's, it's not what I'm saying. The UN said, the only thing that we can find in the human history, what's happening to Northern people, the powers are the Nazi Germany's Holocaust and Stalin's World Camp. So Holocaust is repeating again, and we are silencing again. So I was thinking I can change that. I think that's for the first time realized that I can I can make people to aware what's happening. So from there on, I was writing my first book. I came to New York to resume my education. And one step by step, and now here I am. I'm a conservative, you know, Nazi. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right join the club we're happy to have you you're an american exactly. nazi good for you but the, the thing was is, is you were being invited to speak at a lot of places but again growing up in north korea there were certain people that their names weren't recognizable certainly their companies weren't recognizable and you were invited to come speak to a, a guy's group and his his name was jeff bezos and he was uh, you know this guy who ran a company called amazon and you basically said Nah, i'm busy i can't do that but then he asked you a Again, to come and speak at something called Campfire, and yeah. this time, by this time, you know who Jeff Bezos is. You know what Amazon is. Obviously, you'd been in America for a while, and you accepted his invitation to go and speak at Campfire. Now, I was not aware what Campfire was. Can you can you take us what that what what that was, and then kind of like what it was like once you got there? Yeah, so I
1: think like this is the thing when I came to America, I had no agenda. I had no idea what's the difference between Democrat or conservative, you know, or liberal mm-hmm. or the left. So Like I have. No idea what's even the stereotypes of gen like genders or even uh, race. Like in mm-hmm. North Korea, I did not know there's a different race existed. I come here just pure blank space. And then, like you said, I was invited to go to attend this, say, off-the-record gathering that Jeff Bezos holds each year. And that he usually, I heard the whole, this event in New Mexico where he grew up. But then that year, that resort was going through renovation, so he was holding in Santa Barbara, California. So he would send a private jet to New York, the private airport, to bring his guests. And I think approximately, I might be wrong, around 150 people to go. So the the attendees are like the billionaires and most famous Hollywood stars and writers. And one of the persons that I had to fly together was Harvey Weinstein. So I had no idea who Harvey Weinstein was either. Like, I just yeah. didn't know. I got the airplane, I was waiting, and somebody was running late. So we had to wait for this guy. And then he gets in, and he, he comes shake everybody's hands. And like shook my hand, hey, I'm Harvey. And then, okay, cool. So <laughs> we got to Santa Barbara, and of course, there's a Tom Hanks, Reese Witherspoon. I mean, what was a guy who was in Mad Men? John, somebody...
0: Uh, I, yeah, I know you're talking about, I can't think of his name. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like literally, John Hamm. John yeah, Hamm. John, like anybody you've been seeing on the main TV screen is like there. Right. Yeah. And the people who does, like this billionaire, like clothing companies and tech companies are there. And then there's a several days of treat where we hear stories on the, you know, like fireside chat, almost like that. And then the first day, Harvey would give a speech. How he comes from flushing Queens, come from nothing. He with his greed, he became successful. Now he's helping a lot of marginalized children and giving money to Democratic Party. And then you know how he was getting money from Saudis to help this cause. And like and at the end of his speech, like everybody stood up, giving him a standing ovation, and called him the the man. I mean, the legend. And he was like, everybody was admiring him. And Mm -hmm. of course, like a few months later, the Me Too goes off.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) And like, so yeah.
0: So you're there and eventually you get to give your speech. So everybody gets to give their speeches and your speech is obviously a little bit different. And so you give your speech and it leaves people in tears. People are like leaning forward. They're like, oh, how can we help? And I think at one point you even said Jeff Bezos was in tears and just like, it's just kind of this crazy situation. But that was kind of the first experience where you were around very, very important people. You told them your story. They sounded like they gave a crap. But then when it came to actually doing something about it, they wouldn't really do that. And you went to other events and other speaking engagements, and it was all very similar. You would be with politicians or these famous people, and oh my gosh, that's so hard, that's so crazy. And then you would move to the point where it's like, okay, here's what we can do about it, and then they would disappear. And I'll actually read a quote from your new book, which kind of gets into this. Over the course of the following years, I delivered speeches at Google, Facebook, the United Nations, the U.S. Department of State, and the TED conference describing what I knew to be happening under the Chinese Communist Party and the North Korean regime. It was the same consequence of events everywhere I went. Lots of tears, lots of embracing and handshaking, lots of solicitous sympathy to offers to help, and followed by lots of silence. Now, the reason for this that we can surmise is it almost all came back to a singular reason, and that's China. And people don't really understand the connection between the regimes of North Korea and China. Everyone understands the importance of China to the world because of the amount of stuff that we buy from them, the amount of things that they export directly to us, um, the things that we've offshored to them to make for us. Obviously, China has a lot of countries around the world by the balls, as it were, when it comes to the things that they're able to produce. But talk to me a little bit more about that to where it's like you're trying to be an advocate, you're trying to make change for the people that are still stuck in North Korea, people that you know personally and love, and then you have all these people in the world that can do something about it, but then they just refuse to because they're scared of Daddy China.
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the chapters in the book, I Hypocrisy of the Elites, that initially I believed these people, you know, Hillary Clinton was all about women empowerment, you know, standing up for girls in the world. And I was meeting Nancy Pelosi and anybody can imagine who were the movers and shakers in the world. And they were openly has been talking about they've been denouncing slavery in America. They've been saying that silence is violence. You need to stand up for justice. And I was thinking, okay, these people are saying all this wonderful stuff. Now I just need to tell them what is the actual injustice happening. So I would go tell them about these things. Like, There are 300,000 North Korean girls in China. Their organs are harvested out of them. They are being sold like livestock. The children of these women are more than a million of them. They are also becoming, they are enslaved. So there are government-sponsored modern slavery happening in China and North Korean regime had 25 million slave North Korean people because they are also sponsored by CCP. And we need to hold China accountable. So I've been asking him to do something. And then they said, I'm sorry what you went through, but please don't say how I know you, that you know me in public. Because they need to make money out of CCP. Their business ties with the CCP is so, so big. So these people, they only stand up for gay rights when they get applause. right? They only yeah. stand up for minority rights when it's good for them. When there's actual consequences of standing for truth and justice, they don't do that. It's just a lip service to these slogans, like Black Lives Matter all day long, and slavery was wrong, The America was horrible, we need to abolish slavery, we ha-. and that thing ended. But there's another slavery continuing to happen in modern day, they do not want to denounce that. When it's, it's only convenient, they pretend to fight for justice. And we, reality, they are helping these dictators. They're helping these criminals and enrich just themselves. And completely corrupt people are in American mainstream, in Hollywood, in media, in education. And I think American public, I did not know that either. Like I somehow thought these people were virtuous because that's been all they're doing. They've been virtuous signaling all their life. Mm. And I think finally I woke up to understood American ruling class are so corrupt and they're lying to American people.
0: Uh, Absolutely, I couldn't have said it better myself as you were describing that, somebody that came to mind was LeBron James. This is a guy that hops on every single racial story in America, he gets out over his skis, and he's a a billionaire, right? This Mm -hmm. is one of the most successful black men in the history of humanity. But He doesn't have anything to say about the depravity of what's happening in China. Why? Because there's a bunch of children putting together his shoes for him so that he can sell them and make money through Nike. And He's just one of the many, many examples of people, uh, even the ones that you laid out in your book. And that's kind of an interesting thing. You know, we talk about these these racist incidences that happen in America, you know, where these unarmed black men are being apparently hunted down by these rows of white supremacist cops, even though every single year we're talking about maybe 15 or so unarmed black men are shot by police. And a lot of those men were unarmed, but they were just armed right before they were shot or they were trying to run over the cop with their car before they got out and ran and were shot or something like that. So it, again, it's the narrative versus. Versus the reality and there's the you know whatever people think and then there's truth but then there's something that happened to you Mm -hmm. when you were walking through chicago one day with your baby in broad daylight and this was kind of like a center point of the new book while time Mm -hmm. remains and it kind of led you to to even write the book because this thing had a massive impact on you so take us through that story and take us through what happened
1: so yeah after i graduated from columbia that year i couldn't even go to graduation because of the pandemic they would lock down the cities, close all the small businesses and restaurants, and we couldn't go anywhere. So it was August during the lootings of BLM at George Floyd's summer. Even the grocery stores get looted. I couldn't go buy the milk for my son. The house, children's hospital get looted, literally. They would burn down the... Prescription pills, so people could not get their prescription pills. This is a complete evil act. These people are committing, and the main media, mainstream media, saying there's really not, not much violence. They're completely lying to people. And I'm living in the heart of downtown, and these people are saying they're gonna destroy Trump Tower, and I'm, we are like living next to that. And they, the government, still not denouncing them as a domestic terrorist. Like literally, there are people gonna destroy a building, an entire bridge goes up. There's checkpoint. That is not domestic terrorism. And that day, I was going to go out to get some fresh air with my son and with my nanny. And I was pushed in the broad daylight. I was pushed to the, uh, on the wall, and these girls would come. They are black women, punching me and take my wallet out of me. So I was using my phone to try to record and try to call the police on these girls. But then that's when I couldn't believe it. The people on the street would see me being robbed. And getting punched. A young mother with a two-year-old baby next to her. They would circle around me and screaming at me that I'm a racist. That person's skin color doesn't does not make them a thief. You're a racist. You're crazy. Why are you doing this? They were looking into my eyes. Why are you doing it? Because I was trying to call the police on these girls. These thieves, the criminals. And I still remember in these people's eyes just a rage, like looking at me. Why are you doing this? I'm like it's a common sense if you get robbed and punched or invention, you, you call the police. But I didn't deserve justice because my skin color was not black. America now to the point, they decided who deserve justice and compassion and help based on their skin color. Like North Korea, if you're blood-tainted landowner child, you don't deserve food. You need to die, get tortured and be a slave. And like that. And that's when I understood it was just not a college that was crazy. This ideology, this horrible, evil ideology that made North Korea what it is came outside the campuses and now is on the street. People lost their common sense. They they become mad. And they would refuse to help me. And they were blocking me to call the police.
0: It doesn't even... I, I feel like, Yonmi, if you had tried to write that, like you were writing a novel mm-hmm. and you had tried to think of what is the dumbest possible situation that somebody could go through. I don't even know that you would have came up with a situation like that. No. But as I'm reading it, it's like, yep, I can totally see that happening in a major American city like Chicago. And so it's like you experience everything that you've experienced in your life. You and me, everything that we've talked about and everything that's in your books again, guys go and buy while time remains out now. And also your original memoir in order to live. But there's one quote that, and we'll make this the last question of the day, because mm-hmm. there's a quote from your new book that, frankly, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand how you could write this, but I'll go and read it here. It is not just the basic provisions of everyday life, nutritious food, clean water, light, heat, a bed to sleep in, that I now regard as minor miracles. I feel a deep appreciation and awe for human freedom as a whole, the right to exist, the ability to think, to love, to walk or sit without looking over my shoulder, to take two consecutive breaths uninterrupted by fear. I feel that I have an unusual capacity for gratitude now, and I owe it to the 16-year nightmare that was my previous life. In the most twisted way imaginable, I actually i actually regard that time as a blessing. So you look at the first 16 years of your life, mm-hmm. literal hell on earth, where you you were thinking about dying being better than living, right? You know, you mentioned it earlier in the show the show, like, you know, up to five minutes maximum it would take you to die, but it would keep you from having to live for the rest of your life. Whereas most of the people on the planet are like, what can I do to live as long as possible? You've experienced everything, brainwashing, rape, the things you've experienced here in this country. And you say that you regard that time as a blessing. And every time I hear you talk on me, you're super positive and you're super hopeful and optimistic about what the rest of your life is going to be like for you. And now, not just for you, but for you and your son. Explain that to me again, the eternal pessimist that you're talking to right, <laughs> yeah, right now, you and me. It doesn't make sense to me how you could have that life and have this mindset. Explain it. I think there's
1: this, right? It's, it's without darkness, I guess we cannot see the light, like fish in the water. Don't notice the water. People who were born with two arms will never be able to imagine life without one arm. I think for Americans who were born in freedom, for them, it's a natural thing like fish in the water. They just take it for granted. It's natural in some sense. But for me, I was born in that darkness. I come here. It's not a natural thing for me. For me, it's very unnatural to be free and life can be this, this unbelievably good. I think because of that, I don't have to spend a a penny on therapy. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I now understand how amazing, how resilient humans are. In America, with tiny little discomfort, they give you medicine. Like when I was pregnant with my son, my doctor, in every appointment, she was asking me, do you get like a a depression? Postpartum depression is a very common thing for women. Or do you need medicine for that? Like, because everything is over medicated in America. Like, somehow you cannot feel any little discomfort. That's not okay, somehow, in this culture. And that eliminates your ability to overcome challenges in life, to become strong and finding a deeper sense of who you are. I think because of my North Korean experience, in some sense, like, you know, everything in life in America that I a piece of cake. I don't need a pierce, I don't need a th- like, therapy. And I don't need to live in a like mansion. Like I'm just grateful for probably everything, and just I'm just grateful that I have health. I'm free. Like I have roof over my head, and I think in some sense that that's why I think i mean some say I'm so grateful that I was not born here, because if I born here, I might be one of those kids on their juice detox, on their expensive pants, on their laptop. I'm going to talk about social justice and complaining how horrible capitalism is.
0: It's just incredible to hear you say that. I mean, at Undaunted Life, we equip men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical Resilience, mm-hmm. and so I go around preaching the good news of resilience to people all over the place, and we have listeners all over the world. But I have never spoken with somebody who embodied resilience more than you. So I just wanted to tell you, to Bravo to everything that you've done, that you've come through, and also the work that you're doing now. I really appreciate all the time that you spent with us today. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No,
1: Davio. Thank you so much for
0: having me on. Yonmi Park. Thank you for coming on, on a Life, a Man's Podcast.
1: Thank you.
0: There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Yeonmi Park. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to Yeonmi's website, and I've got a link to where you can pick up her new book, Wild Time Remains, A North Korean Defector's Search for Freedom in America, and also her memoir, In Order to Live a North Korean Girl's Journey to Freedom. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah